Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a podcast that I'm really enjoying at the moment. Disorder is a weekly podcast from Goalhanger, the makers of The Rest is Politics. It's tackling the really big questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And how do seemingly disparate challenges from AI to climate change to wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, to tax havens, to unregulated cyberspace, how do they all interact with each other and feed into our era? So check out the link in the show notes to follow the podcast immediately. So the most extraordinary thing happened that people had, who had spent, you know, the previous however many months trying to escape, uh, you know, post-war Europe, um, place where, you know, they had been facing death all the time, suddenly found themselves back at the port of Hamburg, where they were disembarked by a thousand British troops helped by 1500 German policemen, uh, with brass band music playing over a tannoy in the background to drown out all the screaming. Welcome to the second of these special two episodes on the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict with the historian James Barr. If you haven't already listened to the first episode, that's from last week, I'd strongly advise you to do that first, otherwise this might seem a bit confusing. In last week's episode, we looked at the origins of the Israel-Palestine issue, reaching back all the way to the Ottoman occupation of Palestine in the 16th century, and then following that story through the birth of Zionism, increasing Jewish emigration to what was then Palestine, followed by the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration. And perhaps at the heart of that story was a colonial conflict for control of that territory between Britain and France, where the interests of the indigenous inhabitants of that region were barely considered at all. 
This week, we pick up the story just at the end of the hideous events of World War II and particularly the Holocaust. Jews who've survived those awful events are displaced across Europe and understandably not at all keen to return to their original homes. Instead, the survivors of the Holocaust sought to migrate to Palestine with the aim of starting a new life in what had been historically the land of Israel. But as we'll hear, there was nothing straightforward about that ambition. In particular, the British colonial authorities in Palestine were extremely reluctant to allow the Jews' arrival. So here's James picking up the story in the late 1940s as Jewish militancy is targeting British colonial officials as they seek to limit the ability of Jews to come to what is now Israel. So it's important that we start to talk about the uh, the organizations and entities that the Jewish people uh, were putting together in the devastating aftermath of the Holocaust in order to facilitate this movement, but also armed organizations, organizations that could be described as terrorist organizations. So we're, we're talking about the a very chaotic situation, 1945, 6, 7. What was happening in Europe at that time? So there'd always been the Haganah, uh, or at least for, for, for many years, that was, a, that was essentially a defensive militia that was set up to protect uh, Jewish settlements in Palestine, particularly after the, the, the Arab revolt had yeah. kicked off in 1936. And by 1938 or so, that had turned its... Uh, sort of energies to people smuggling. So at that point, it was still possible to get people out, but there was there were strict, um, increasingly strict British limits on on immigration. So in 1939, the British imposed a limit of 15,000 Jewish people per year for the next five years. So maximum of 75,000 people. And yeah. they then after that, they sort of did things on a on a kind of ad hoc basis. So they were very, you know, at a point when it became, the, the scale of the Holocaust started to become clear during 1942, I suppose, and it was publicly acknowledged by Anthony Eden in Parliament in December 42. At that time, Britain was still still had very, very strict limits on who could actually come and, and, and Jews who did come and, and, and were, were intercepted were then sent off to places like Mauritius, where they were you know, incarcerated for the rest of the war. Yeah, that caused massive anger, as you hardly yeah. got surprised to know. the The result of that was the creation of two groups. There was the Stern Gang, which um, named after Avram Stern, who was a sort of kind of poet. Essentially, uh, he was he he started a terrorist campaign in 1942 at a time when there was very little sympathy for what he was doing, and he was rather quickly rounded up because he made plenty of enemies in a short space of time. Uh, and he was essentially shot while resisting arrest or what shot whilst escaping. And he was found in a, a flat in Tel Aviv. Uh, and the British kind of clapped themselves on the back and said, oh, well done, we fixed that. But actually, the Stern gang carried on. And um, two of its members were responsible for the assassination of, of Britain's top man in the Middle East, Lord Moyne, in 1944. So, yeah. so they hadn't gone away. Uh, they were getting support from the French, meanwhile, because the disaffected elements of the Vichy government in Beirut had realised that they could make common cause with the um, with the, the, the Zionist terrorists uh, because they both saw Britain as being the, 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 the great local problem. So 
there was a French intelligence officer called Colonel Alessandri who ran something called the Bureau Noir, so the black office. And he was spotted having um, sort of lunch, breakfast, whatever, with 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 known terrorists, uh, or, you know, in French controlled territory. And, and, and eventually the British managed to get him get him chucked out but he never really got a rap on the the um knuckles i eventually managed to see his personal file in the, the french archives and it was quite clear that uh what he did enjoyed um sanction right up at the top level in the french french government so this is a, a bizarre case again of sort of your enemy's enemy in that the 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 extremely anti-semitic vichy regime was also supporting jewish militancy against the british in palestine Exactly right. And weirdly enough, the, I mean, Stern himself wondered whether he would get Nazi support for, for what he was doing. It was all incredibly complicated and yeah, and, uh, yeah and, and, and kind of counterintuitive. Uh, on the other hand, the other the other group there was was the Ergun, which uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to remember when it was set up. I think it was again, it was just pre-war, but it, it, it didn't it didn't do anything until essentially after the war. Yeah. Uh, so. When it became clear in 1945 that the immigration restrictions weren't going to be relaxed, uh, despite the fact there was now a Labour government, which had professed itself up until it took power to being, you know, pro-Zionist, and people like Hugh Dalton, who ended up as Chancellor of the Exchequer, making very, very pro, um, you know, pro-Zionist comments uh, in the run-up to the election. But once they took power, well, firstly, Bevin became uh, Foreign Secretary, and he was by no means... Um, uh, pro-Zionist. In fact, yeah. many people think he was anti-Semitic himself. Uh, but they, they also he took the view that there were lots of people who had, um, you know, had a bad time in the war, and that everyone needed to form an orderly queue, and, and gradually, you know, everyone would be sorted out. Uh, the British were quite slow at understanding that Jews who'd survived the Holocaust were not going to want to go back to where they'd lived before, either because those places were essentially nothing and everybody else had been wiped out, or because they still faced anti-Semitism there. That, you know, just because the Nazis had been defeated doesn't, didn't mean that anti-Semitism had magically disappeared. And uh, there was still plenty of evidence uh, that you, you know, that you can read about of, of, of rife anti-Semitism after, after the war. So yeah. people didn't want to go home. The British didn't appreciate that. And at the end of 1945, there was the creation of something called the Jewish Resistance Movement, which Brent essentially brought all these organisations together under the umbrella of the Jewish agency, which tried to pretend it had nothing to do with any of this. Uh, and in the background, um, David Ben-Gurion, who was uh, the most um, militant, I think, of, of the Zionists, really, he was he was sort of, you know, behind the scenes or organising stuff. But the British never really, even though they had they had they got very, very close to sort of intelligence breakthroughs, which would have shown them what was what was going on. They had quite good interception of of, of communications, uh, but they never really understood the nature of what they were were fighting. Meanwhile, the French government were quite happy to let the Ergun in particular, not the Stern gang, not so much, but the, the Ergun were given a, a base on French soil and they had been helping again to organise uh, emigration. There were lots of people who had, uh, you know, who'd survived the Holocaust coming west. There were pictures of people up in French railway stations, for example, you know, all these people, have you seen my relatives? Sort of, you know, yes. imagine a bit like these posters that have been recently with the, the hostages. Imagine stations full of pictures of people's people's relatives saying, have you know, has anyone seen these people last seen, you know, six years before or something? Yeah. 
the Urgen took uh, made their headquarters. It's a very I forget what the name of the hotel is. It's on the Rue de Sèvres. It's a sort of turn of the 20th century, very flash hotel, which has only re- relatively recently been been done up. But that was their HQ. They made absolutely no effort to sort of conceal where they were. And the French turned a blind eye to what they were doing. Uh, and what they were doing was sending letter bombs to to British politicians. And the French said, that's OK, as long as you don't post them, they don't, mustn't have a French postmark on them. So uh, the letter bombs were constructed in France and then uh, couriered over the border, either to, um, to uh, Turin, uh, in Italy or, or into Belgium, where they were then sent to um, British officials. So Anthony Eden received one. They were very thin. It was just like a, an envelope, but it had yeah. plastic explosive inside it. And uh, I think Eden went to Eton and he went he went back to his old school for the, the sort of that summer celebration that, that the school has every every year and carried this letter bomb around with him for the entire day in his briefcase until suddenly, finally, someone got word to him that there'd been this series of um, you know, letters had arrived and yeah. it wasn't to do anything uh, to open it. So uh, close shave. Um, close but, shave for, for Eden. But um, I'm trying to understand. So obviously France at this point is not Vichy France. It's liberated France. It's General de Gaulle's France. What was their objective in 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 sort of allowing this uh, terrorist movement to flourish? Well, I think it was revenge, as simple as that. And I know some, some people think that that's a, a rather extreme view, but uh, the only the other day I was rereading a book by a man called Jacques Soustel, who was de Gaulle's head of intelligence and yeah. uh, famous anthropologist. And it's called it's called The Long March of, of Israel. And I'm rereading my notes just because I, I just they happened to pop up when I did a, a quick search for something completely different. And he says very, very clearly in the book that it was, you know, it was a policy of revenge because the other thing that had been going on that we haven't even covered is that, that Britain was trying to help the Arab nationalists in Lebanon and Syria gain independence. Because just before that war that I talked about in 1941, uh, against when Britain fought the French sort of for the last time, uh, the British had tried to make their job easier by forcing de Gaulle to issue this promise of independence to Lebanon and Syria. And of course, yeah. once de Gaulle got power, the last thing he was going to do was honour that because it was going to be a gift to his opponents. And, you know, Vichy government yeah. was going to say, well, you're just handing over bits of France. Yeah. Uh, so of course, of course, there's no there's no assumption of, you know, with history, we look back and think that decolonization was a necessary outcome of World War Two. But the people running the countries that were colonizers didn't think that at the time. No, exactly. Absolutely not. It, 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 yeah. De Gaulle was all set to, 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 you know, to carry on where he'd left off. Uh, but we sent in this man called Edward Louis Spears, who was a, a mate of Churchill and had been de Gaulle's main sponsor. So he was the man who dragged de Gaulle by his uh, you know, coat lapels aboard an aircraft in Bordeaux in 1940 to get into London. And the two of them are, are pictured in the Savoy the following lunchtime, enjoying a kind of half a carafe of red wine and a cigar. Uh, but the problem was that as de Gaulle became more and more awkward, uh, Spears, who was another Conservative MP uh, and a bit washed up, realised that his his reputation was on the line. And so he's sort of the worm turned and he went back to Lebanon, where he essentially sided with the, the, the Lebanese and the Syrian nationalists and, uh, and helped organise um, or helped support their successful election campaigns in in 43. Well, the, the French knew all about this. They had a spy inside uh, Spears's office. They knew exactly what was going on. And so, uh, you know, they wanted they they wanted their revenge. Yeah. So we 
we have the Ergon operating out of Paris, um, carrying out uh, different types of operations, including uh, the bombing in 1946 of the British Embassy in Rome. And I mention that because if you visit Rome today, you'll see that the British Embassy is perhaps unexpectedly for that historic city, a, a rather modernist, boxy uh, creation. I think it's Basil Spence, who was, you know, a distinguished 20th century architect, probably a bit out of fashion now. Uh, it's not really what you expect for a British embassy in a city like Rome, but that's because the embassy was blown up in 1946. That's right. And I'd, I'd actually forgotten that episode. And it's yeah, exactly. It was th this was a campaign that it was. Yes, it wasn't confined. It certainly wasn't confined to Palestine. It was it, it, it hit London. There were there were uh, bombs went off in London. Uh, a, a woman called Betty Newt, I think, K-N-O-U-T. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce her, but she had been she'd been a courier in the French resistance. She ended up working for the Ergun and and she took a bomb and, and left it in the I think the the sort of basement loo in the colonial office having managed to get in there saying that she desperately needed a wee and uh uh so she left the bomb there it only it, well i can't remember quite why it failed the british actually initially what what i've written in the book it turns out not to be true because there's been more recently there's been archives released released that show that actually what they the reason they gave for the bomb failing to go off was um a disinformation because they wanted to conceal the real reason why it had failed there was some technical reason why the bomb makers had, had got things wrong but anyway that bomb didn't go off but there were others that that did and yeah. uh in fact i mean there was another man roy farron who's who was involved in another scandal where he he had kidnapped a, a young jewish lad and murdered him and his brother got sent a bomb um so they were both they both had the initial r um and his brother was sent a bomb uh concealed i think as a sort of complete works of shakespeare which killed him yeah um and the ergon is doing this in order to change the british stance on immigration to palestine uh but at the same time, of course, you have non-violent, uh, the, the role of the Jewish agency is very important. Could you explain a bit about what that is? So the Jewish agency was was there, increasingly a state within a state, really, in, in Palestine, taking on, on more and more functions, surreptitiously organising a lot of what was going on, but in a way that was, was deniable. And their headquarters were in uh, West Jerusalem, right, uh, sort of, um, high up in West West Jerusalem, and... formally it's a kind of charitable organisation, isn't it? At this, that's stage. right. I mean, yeah, it yeah. was it was sort of set up. It was set up to sort of ease the way of for Jewish immigrants to Palestine from the yeah. you know, from 1920 onwards. So it's 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 you know its its origins and and purpose were entirely genuine. And uh, but it was sort of increasingly just having more and more power. It. it um, just understood what was going on. It had extraordinarily good intelligence. It understood exactly what was going on inside the British administration and, and so on. And uh, eventually the British would just would determine they, they, they sort of realized that what was going on. They were they knew there was some sort of connection between the terrorism that was going on and, and the agency. And so eventually uh, they launched an operation to try and, um, you know, to make the make the connection to because uh, the British were trying to show the Americans that the, the key thing through this time was trying to persuade the Americans to, to take things seriously and to understand what they were up against. Obviously, there was uh, lots, lots of support, sympathy for Zionism in America. There was lots of fundraising going on in, in uh, the United States for uh, for 
you know, for Palestine at this time, support for the illegal immigration that was going on, that was being organized and boats were being um, bought in the United States and then used to, to ship Jewish refugees to, to Palestine. So the British were determined they needed to sort of show that there was a dark side to all this and that, that the, you know, the, the agency and others were, were all tied up in, in, in the armed resistance that they were facing. Yeah. So they raided the agency one Saturday morning. So, you know, um, uh, the Jewish Sabbath, they they uh, launched this um, raid on the agency and they they took everything out of it. They took all the paperwork and they took it off to uh, the King David Hotel, which was um, still there, uh, yeah. was the headquarters of the British administration in Palestine at that time. There was a whole wing of the, the hotel that was was um, the high commission, essentially. Uh, with the high commissioner working there and so on and so they took all this paperwork away well of course the people in the you know people on the the other side on the jewish side realized they thought god what have they found what kind of incriminating yeah. stuff might there be there and so fatefully they took the decision then to uh, attack the hotel right and it's we should talk about that because that is one of the most famous or even infamous sort of episodes of this part of the story, the King David Hotel bombing, in which 91 people were killed. So, so explain that to our listeners. So the hotel was the the, the HQ of the, the British administration. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was a it was it was the place that all the paperwork from the agency had been taken to. The, uh, the, the Zionists wondered whether they might be able to sort of disrupt, uh, you know, to 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 disrupt the sort of analysis of all that paperwork and, and yeah. conceal what was actually going on. And so a group of terrorists who would all describe disguised as Arabs, I think there was one man wearing yeah. a sort of Sudanese uniform, uh, wheeled us, they, they, I think they, maybe they even, they, there was a milk round, they had milk trains. So this, by, by this point, the, the King David Hotel was fairly heavily fortified. Yeah, uh, but they got in. They were they were disguised as milkmen, I think, and they wheeled a series of, of um, metal churns into a basement light nightclub in the hotel, which was under the wing where the British uh, High Commission's offices were. Uh, the nightclub had been kept open against security advice because the situation was really so depressing there that, that uh, somebody in authority said, look, we've really got to keep this place open because it's really the only place that people can relax. And uh, anyway, the, the milk churns containing all the high explosive were all wheeled in. At that point, things all become rather unclear because uh, the, uh, the, the, the the Zionists said that they issued a telephone warning and they claimed that the British ignored it. Yeah, the French got a telephone warning. They had somewhere just round the corner. They opened all the windows to reduce the effect of, um, you know, flying glass, uh, and then denied that they had a had any kind of warning. But there was obviously something something going on. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the bomb went off. Uh, Ninety one people were killed, as you say, and of course, as with a lot of these things, they most of them, you know, were of of peripheral importance to the the government of Palestine, but, you know, crucial to the running of, of the High Commission. So yeah. drivers, waiters, all this sort of ordinary people um, who, who, who died as a result of a result of all this. But it was it was an absolute body blow for uh, for the British. I think that, you know, psychologically absolutely disastrous for for 
um, for the people running the country, many of whom had been working there for years and years. A bit like, imagine if you're a British diplomat now who'd worked in, in Europe all your career, in the EU, in, in multilateral diplomacy. Um, there was a whole generation of people who had worked in Palestine who, uh, whilst we see the motives as rather you know cynical now, uh, in the way of people bound up in things at that time, did many cases honestly believe that they were trying to you know bring peace, do yeah. good all the rest of it, um, and felt that the British Empire was a force for good, no matter, yeah. no matter how we might see that now. So these people have been, you know, they might have been there since 19, you know, the 20s, they had spent their whole career there, and then suddenly they're faced with this, you know, this kind of explosion of violence, um, uh, you know, in, in the 1940s. Well, I was going to say that it basically, it that event um, was a was an example of terrorism having a desired political effect because it caused a collapse in the will of the British to continue to sort of run the mandatory Palestine that they, you know, that they had since World, World War One, uh, and and really to kind of walk away and, and sort of leave it to be someone else's problem. Exactly. I mean, it's a successful example of terrorism and there are various good books uh on this, um, one by David Hoffman, uh, which came out since I wrote A Line in the Sand. But the other book that's very interesting is Ronan Bergman's book, Rise and Kill First, about the Israeli policy of targeted assassinations, because he puts this policy in this historical context, because one of the things that the Zionists were so effective at doing in the 1940s was, was killing very specific people. So there were these massive bombings, yeah. but there were also targeted assassinations of, you know, the, the Hebrew speakers. There weren't large numbers of British who had the, you know, the language, um, uh, you know, uh, um, the languages. They didn't, or they, or the, they didn't speak Hebrew. There weren't many of them. And, and yeah. And the Zionists were ruthless at identifying exactly who these people were and, and murdering them, meaning that the British, you know, just didn't really have a clue about what was what was going on. And Bergman's point is, you know, this was hugely successful in the 40s. It led ultimately to Israeli independence. It certainly, you know, it brought the mandate to an end faster than the British would have liked. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's what it's, you know, that policy carried on. And of course, you know, it's um, its consequences have been with us ever since. Yeah. So let's talk about that. The, we, we move quite quickly um, from what is a British imperial administration to a very brief period of sort of of the United Nations itself, an organization that's only existed for a couple of years, uh, trying to organize um, the, 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 the transition, if you like, to to the state of Israel and its formation. Uh, can you can you talk us through that? that moment and also perhaps having regard to at this point really quite large numbers of people now coming to what becomes Israel and and you mentioned earlier in this discussion the exodus ship it's probably time to bring that back into the story. Yeah so 1947 the year after the King David Hotel bombing was one of these years when there are multiple things happening at once and it's quite hard to, to tell it as an understandable story. Yeah. But in February, the British referred the whole question of Palestine to the United Nations. And in the light of, say, Indian independence later that year, you might think this is a sort of this is the sign of Britain giving up and yeah. uh, you know, waving the white flag. But actually, 
they hadn't at that point. There was still this hope that they might be able to find a, essentially a UN mandate to, to stay there. What the British wanted to do was get the UN to say Britain should run this place and that would give them, you know, new a new um, reason to do justification. Yeah, as a raison d'etre, yeah. Credit, you know, exactly, that, that, was, that was credible in international law. Uh, so at the time when they, you know, when they put it to the UN, they... Um, you know, they still hope that they might, you know, they might, they might be the answer to the question that, that they were asking effectively. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But in the meantime that year, various things uh, went wrong, happened, went wrong. And I think the key one is the, the Exodus, which was a ship that it, in a previous life, it had been a pleasure cruiser on the um, Chesapeake Bay. And if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah. it, it. It was a pretty dilapidated vessel. It seen better days, partly because of, during the war, it had been requisitioned and used as a, a sort of military barracks. So mm. it had probably not been looked after very well. It eventually made its way back to the United States having, having spent the war off Devon, I think. And uh, yeah. uh, it was bought by the Zionists using a front company and they they uh, had it refitted. They had the engine souped up and the aim was then to take it to France, pick up passengers and then try and run the gauntlet of the of the uh, of, of sort of British Coast Guard operations yeah. off Palestine. What the what the you know traditionally these operations did was simply to try and beach the ship in very shallow water everyone would climb out get out somehow and they would just simply you know disappear ashore there's a very very famous photograph of this happening where the ship is sort of kind of beached offshore yeah there's a whole load of people sunbathing on the beach and there are people wading ashore where they'll just sort of you know merge into the crowd and and get away and that's the start of their life in Israel. Exactly. That's that's it. And, they, you know, people certainly once they were on the beach, no one was going to grasp them up. So uh, yeah. uh, so that was the, that was the plan. Uh, but the Haganah who bought the ship, actually, they didn't really expect that to happen. And the reason we know they didn't expect that to happen was because of who they put on the ship. They, they wanted the ship to cause a, a rumpus. Uh, and they on board, they when when the. They got about 4,500 people on board in the port of Set, the, the French southern coast. And yes. uh, a sort of a kind of disproportionate number of those people were pregnant women or, or, or mothers with very young children, very old people and the sick. So the aim was, you know, it was designed to uh, elicit an emotional response when, when as exactly as they expected, the British then rammed the ship in international waters, which they weren't supposed to do. 
uh, off Palestine. They towed it into the port of Haifa. They offloaded everybody at gunpoint. And there are, again, there is a photo of a woman pushing a pram um, down the quayside, you know, surrounded by um, uh, British paratroops. Yeah. So, you know, this and then they were put on another ship and they were shipped back to France because the French had rather disingenuously said, well, if you do send them back, um, you may be able to, you know, return them to to, to sort of return them to sender. This is the whole policy of refoulement that we've uh, the word that we've heard a little bit about over the the last few days yeah uh, of course the these uh, all, all the refugees sent back to france very very few of them agreed to disembark in in france they didn't they didn't want to get off there despite the fact the british threatened to to take them onto hamburg uh if they didn't get off there and when they didn't that's what the british did so the most extraordinary thing happened that people had who had spent you know the previous however many months trying to escape uh you know post-war europe um place where you know they have been yeah. facing death all the time suddenly found themselves back at the port of hamburg where they were disembarked by a thousand british troops helped by 1500 german policemen wow. uh, with brass band pl- music playing over a tannoy in the background to drown out all the screaming and and when they were put back on the ship in haifa the un commission that had been appointed after the British said, please come and investigate this problem, the UN Commission members of that were all standing on the quayside. You can see them. They are no more than 10 yards from the ship as it is in port looking you know, at what's going on. And yeah. so not surprisingly, the UN Commission uh, you know, declared that there was no future for, for, for Britain in, in Palestine. And at that point, that got the clock ticking because what they said at that stage was that it needed to be partitioned into two states, um, a Jewish state and, a, and an Arab state uh, with an international zone in, in Jerusalem. Yeah. And the British, I suppose the British could have stayed on, but they realised that this was unenforceable. The, you know, they, they had proposed partition in the 1930s and, and that had um, produced uh, storms of protest. Uh, there was no way the British were going to hang around to see if they could enforce what they thought was a you know, a, a naive UN plan. And so I think September, November, October that year, they announced that they would leave in May 1948, come what may. Yeah. And in November 1947, the UN then voted on the plan and they voted in favour of it. So they, at that point, uh, a Jewish state got into, you know, got sort of in the international seal of approval because it got the yeah. two-thirds um, vote that it needed. Yeah. And under international law, that remains uh, the the sort of accepted status, albeit it is nothing like what is actually happening on the ground. Yes, exactly. I mean, so the UN plan granted Israel, as it became, 55% of the old Palestine mandate. So the, the territory of Palestine, they were going to get 55 percent of that but then in the war that followed the the jews the israelis um got half as much again so they took over another sort of 25 percent of of the territory from from the arabs and of course at the same time they had done a deal with the jordanians behind the scenes king of jordan abdullah had uh, had cut a deal so that he would invade the west bank in 1948 and take that over and the West Bank was Jordanian controlled until the 67 war. Yeah. So that war, so Israel has had to fight several wars throughout its 
period of existence and it began with the war in 48 who who was israel fighting everybody uh, or all its neighbors uh, yeah. it was it was fighting egypt jordan syria lebanon and i think the iraqis were there as well so yeah. it was you know existential uh for israel and i think that's the critical thing that you have to have in mind because this was a you know this was an like all wars it was appalling and like all wars there were atrocities that that happened and some some infamous ones in there uh and which people tried to deny or but i think actually it's far better to try to explain it and the explanation i think pretty you know pretty clearly is that uh the israelis were faced with you know there was a, they were way uh, outnumbered by by the the armies of their arab neighbors yeah uh and so they did everything that they could to you know to they they were fighting absolutely for their lives having many of them just you know just managed to escape you know the holocaust escape, escape the holocaust in europe it's you know it's the background of the holocaust that that uh helps explain this so that they in fact they exaggerated some of what they'd done uh they you know the, the the sort of atrocities at the time it was it was worth exaggerating those because the other thing that they did and the other the cons the other crucial consequence of the war was the number of refugees palestinian refugees that it created as yes. three quarters of a million and the you know the 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 reason they wanted to you know to to um exaggerate what they'd done was they were hoping that it would cause terror and it, and it did and uh you know people people terror that would result in people fleeing people leaving exactly yes. you know frankly they wanted people to leave with as you know as little actual physical pressure as possible and and and, and that is that is uh that is what happened yeah um, and of course in in the arabic language there's a word nakba and nakba uh, which yeah. means just means the catastrophe. But before the, this these events, it didn't have a particular resonance. But it has now come to be the word that Palestinians and other Arabs use to sort of summarize these events. That's right. Because yes, I mean everybody who uh, the, the you know the Palestinians were forced forced from their homes, places that they'd often lived for for many many generations, uh, in places like Jaffa and Haifa, particularly the, the you know the the, the very densely populated areas of the of the coast uh and they were forced to, you know into most of them into the west bank uh, but also into lebanon and syria and the gaza strip as well and um you know by and large they they haven't come back yeah so um i want to talk about that a bit but bef before we get there just briefly under the original uh sort of un proposal prior to this war what was supposed to have happened? Because presumably there wasn't supposed to be the displacement of this many people, but clearly Israel needed to exist as a state. No, I mean, what the the UN proposal cut uh, pa sort of Palestine into six different bits, and three of them were going to be uh, Jewish and three of them were going to be Arab. And it's, it's, it's quite complicated to describe them. You really have to have a look at a map to see, but they were... Um, they were sort of twisted together, so there were various points at which the, the 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 territories the territories all touched each other. So it would be possible to make a journey through yeah. the three Arab territories or through the three Jewish territories, you know, through contiguous territory. But there were going to be these sort of cross crossroads yeah. at various points. Well, of course, I mean that was 
it, was a, it, it looked all right on paper and it sounded all right in theory, but those places also saw, you know, extreme violence um, as, as during the war as, as, as the Israelis tried to, to, to sort of control them and take, take them over. So it was, yeah, it was, it looked good, but in practice it wasn't workable. Yeah. So we get we get to the end, and as you mentioned, you have the West Bank, which is the bit the bit from Jerusalem going eastwards towards the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and then you have the Gaza Strip. And given what's happening right now, uh, let's talk a little bit about Gaza. Why is why was Gaza right from the beginning seen as a sort of a key area for the Arabs, and and what's its significance in in the wider territory? Well, so I mean, it it was an area where there was a concentration of of Arab uh, settlement. That it was it wasn't. I mean, there there weren't really large numbers of Jewish people living there. I think I'm right in saying so. Under one of the earlier proposals, I think it was the the 1936 British proposal. It was going to it was going going to go to the Arabs already. So it was a it was a logical place to go. The the Egyptians took it over during the war they 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 ran gaza for the next uh, few years so it, yeah. it it was it was logical um you know it was a logical place to go if you go right into the deep history it was always somewhere that had resisted jewish rule so i mean we're now back in 200 bc with the hasmoneans hugely ambitious jewish dynasty who had taken over Judea as it was then as the ruling sort of Greek Seleucids imploded and the Hasmoneans tried to expand the state of Judea and they 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 took over Galilee for example where Jesus came from and forcibly converted people there and they tried to do the same thing in Gaza uh, but they never succeeded They, they the Gazans really sort of pushed back against them and interestingly Gaza remained a pagan sort of city uh really up until about 400 AD there's a report of a wow. bishop in about 400 AD finally got permission from the pope to go in there very heavy-handedly and uh, to destroy this big um big temple that there was right there was there so there's always been this going right back and not just you know not just um arab versus jew or or uh, you know, or, or Muslim versus versus Jew. It, it sort of, you know, it goes it goes back. It's sort of deeper than this. It's um, I mean, it was a hugely prosperous place because of the frankincense trade of a very long time ago. Uh, but it, yeah, it had retained a, an Arab identity, so it's an important place. And of course, there are now you know millions of people living there. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, effectively that the war comes to an end. Um, there's a, a a sort of armistice is agreed. And you have Palestinian refugees, many in the West Bank, many in Gaza, but many in neighboring countries, notably Syria, Jordan and Lebanon, uh, where they remain to this day. Uh, and of course, we're talking historic events so that they have now, you know, children and grandchildren, probably great grandchildren who are of that status, all of whom uh, see themselves as displaced people with a right of return to what is now Israel. That's right. So the three quarters of 700,000 or three quarters of a million refugees in 1948, I think, are now six million people. Yeah, that's the number of people who claim refugee status. Uh, And yes, so, I mean, with, you know, with every generation, bearing in mind how small this territory is, 
the idea of a right of return or a right of return of course is different from actually returning but 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 yeah. you know it, the practicalities of it become more and more difficult to achieve yeah yeah um i'm conscious of the time i i want to try and uh, sort of surge forward a little uh the the state of israel is established um but uh, israel then has to fight two more uh, sort of existential wars, 1967 and 1973, um, uh, and arguably has never stopped having to fight different types of sort of militancy and terrorism. The survival of the state of Israel at this stage is presumably not by any means guaranteed. As a historian looking back, at what point do you sort of see that Israel has more or less secured its basic territory, or, or is that still an unfolding process? That's a brilliant question, um, because I think people would say that the 67 war, the perception would be that the 67 war changed things completely because yeah. I don't know that I can't think of the exact, you know, the, the distance, but the, the, the distance between the Mediterranean coast and the westernmost bit of the West Bank up in the north is yeah. 10 miles i don't know maybe a little bit more than that but it's very very small i think it is i'm looking it, at a map it's 10 miles got, okay yeah. it's 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 a very small amount uh, there's a there's a there's a, a sort of a story that isa weitzman who was i think he ended up as president of israel at one point but he was the head of the israeli air force in the 60s so he yeah. was someone he, and he, fl and he could obviously fly um, and he was sort of very, he was also a real hawk, but he was very, very aware. If you flew, you could see just how, you know, how marginal. How thin this territory exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. This is the thing, you know, and that sort of sense of we could be driven into the sea, um, you know, is is there, particularly if you can you can see that. So yeah. I think I, I think I'd agree with that, that 67 is the moment, because clearly then, then Israel expanded into you know, took over the, all of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and 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 Sinai for uh, a while and the and the Golan Heights. So, it you know it changing. I'm not convinced the Golan Heights were always seen as a sort of issue of prestige rather than actually being that important or important yeah. land or even that important for for water. Uh, but of course, the problems that Israel faces in terms of making peace come from that moment too, because by by winning the war, they took over. Palestinian territory uh, that uh, triggered a you know wave of settlement activity, which is it seems to have only got you know um, accelerated in in recent years. And so, in a sense, I think although territorially it changed, you know, it made Israel a sort of more secure. I don't think it's really changed the sort of the, the existential question, which is you know can Israel find a uh, you know find peace with uh its neighbors that you know that, that brings a sense of inner security to its people and and i don't think that 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 war has achieved that no well i mean the, the events of of the last couple of months in a way sort of remind us of that in a, in a tragic way clearly uh israel faced uh huge enmity and threats from the arab nations surrounding it albeit over time it has managed you know, to 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 make peace with Jordan and and Egypt, albeit you know, again, it's a it's a very yeah. it's a very delicate peace. Um, but the the Palestinians themselves, 
it took them a bit of a while to sort of get organized and and eventually you have this this entity the PLO led by Yasser Arafat uh what what significance does this have in in the story the significance is i suppose it's really the palestinians taking matters into their own hands arafat of course set up fatah first of all in in yeah. 59 really as a result of the, the failure of of nasser i suppose i suppose i think that i think that's the right way to 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 frame it you know there were great hopes that nasser would do something nasser was actually extremely cautious he didn't want to have a, a war with israel he was it was yeah. always tomorrow would be better and you know we must be prepared arafat set up uh fatah nasser set up the plo as a sort of drag anchor to sort of to to you know to try to stop the palestinians doing anything too precip- precipitate yeah, and uh, but the result was, a, a, you know, a rising amount of, of violence because the Syrians were very willing to to back Fatah, partly to poke a stick in Nasser's eye. So, uh, so that you know, the the Palestinian cause then became a kind of football that different, um, you know, particularly Syria and and uh, and and Egypt used to sort of try and kind of score points against each other. I think that's the 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 main takeaway. Arafat, sorry, took over the PLO uh, in the in the 60s and, and sort of established control over it and then used initially used Jordan or, or the West Bank as a, as a base. And that helped precipitate the 67 war, yeah. uh, forcing the PLO into to Lebanon. And then that brings us in a way into a story which is very similar to today's conflict because you had, you know, atrocities. The, the big one was 1978. There was this uh, uh, bus hijacking in Tel Aviv where the, the, the Palestinian terrorists had come from Beirut and the Israelis were under very, very um, considerable public pressure at home to do something. So they invaded Lebanon. Yeah, They were warned off by Carter because Carter was trying to make bring peace between Israel and Egypt and he, he got his peace. Yeah, uh, and the Israelis then invaded again in 1982 and got bogged down in this long war in in Lebanon, and they only left in 2000. Yeah, uh, and so there's you know there's, there's that kind of I find that the, the power of echoes that to the, and today are very interesting, not least yeah. because it gave birth to Hezbollah along the way. So in trying to deal with one terrorist threat, um, the Israelis created or well created the conditions in which another one emerged and, and a far more powerful one than the PLO because the PLO never really had they had the backing of Palestinians in Lebanon but they never really had broader support in Lebanon which which Hezbollah has until fairly recently at least enjoyed yeah and of course the other actor in this story which comes in later is um post-revolutionary Iran. So Iran has its Islamic revolution in 1979. And before that, uh, the Shah of Iran, although there was plenty of anti-Semitism in Iranian society, the, the the Shah's people had quite close relations with Israel, didn't they? They did. I mean, and Iran, I mean, so yeah, sort of politically and, and in, intelligent in terms of intelligence and, and the Iranians were supplying Israel with with oil and of course that's what made uh, and the, the oil was arriving through the straits of tehran in the you know in the south up the red sea to um to elat so uh, you know that was in a way that's what made israel so nervous about about um egyptian attempts to take over uh, the sinai peninsula 
because yeah. because of the strength of this this you know this connection with Iran but all that changed in um well it changed in 79 except that in a sense I think I mean the you know the the, the real curdling of of Israeli Iranian relations is much much more recent it's more like the you know it's the era of Ahmadinejad in 2005 yeah. onwards uh in fact you know of course these the Israelis helped the Iranians during the Iran Iraq war because they regarded Saddam as as the bigger as the worst the, the worst of the two options and the more yeah. the closer threat so they provided the Iranians with the intelligence that Iran used to destroy a good chunk of the Iraqi air force on the ground so uh you know it's complicated Yes, as ever, as ever. Um, we, we, we've covered a lot of the ground that I wanted to because it's that earlier period that I think people have less understanding of. But given your uh, role as a historian, when you look at uh, where we are now, um, and you know we're recording this on the 22nd of November, as it happens, there's a brief ceasefire in place to allow some hostages to be released, which of course I'm sure everyone would be happy to know about. But it doesn't feel like that that's an end by any means to the conflict which has erupted in Gaza as a result of the Hamas's 7 October massacre. Um, stepping back a little to the the, the possibility or even the, the, the hope of a two state solution, I have to say that the, the more I know, uh, the less I can see a way to get there. What, what, what's your sense? Uh, clearly, you're you're very familiar with the different sort of iterations that have existed over the years. But what you seem to have now is obviously the Gaza Strip is is extremely dense and and now in a state of of, of real destruction. Uh, the West Bank has become a totally incoherent territory because of the expansion of settlements. Lots of places where Palestinians aren't allowed to go, um, and and still less you know would be safe to do so. Uh, so is is there anything that could be even assuming a ceasefire, assuming, you know, grown up leadership on both sides? Um, is there anything that could even be used to stitch together a state out of those elements? I think the short answer is no. Um, unfortunately, I, I think I, I'm, I, I agree with you. I don't I think the problem is I think people sort of people cling to the two state solution as a phrase. It's a bit like yeah. that kind of orange life ring that you see on the you know on a pier yeah uh and i don't you know i i just don't I, it it doesn't it's not viable uh, how well how would you do it you've got to you've got to remove half a million israeli settlers from the west bank yeah uh, that's a far bigger sort operation second second nakba you know <laughs> well it's a, yeah exactly so for them exactly these well the israelis have to want to confront their own their own their own people uh, they yeah. had to do that in gaza back in 2004 when they they disengaged from gaza that was you know that was a few thousand people it was what maybe five five thousand even then as a recall it was very controversial and, and there were people yeah. you know accusing the israeli government of being nazis and and, yeah. and so on i mean that it was the passions ran incredibly high and I mean, there's a mixture of people, you know, not all settlers in the West Bank are, you know, there because they believe that, you know, for religious reasons, some of them simply want, a, you know, a better home than they would have elsewhere in the country. But, you know, that persuading people uh, or, or coercing them to leave that territory to create a viable Palestinian state is just not, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think it's I think we don't do ourselves any favours by 
carrying on talking about the two-state solution now i think i think the fact is it's 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 a dead letter uh yeah. and you know but it's a convenient thing to say because it's something to say when you're if you're a politician and you're challenged on it you can you can announce your belief in it a bit like some sort of you know early christian creed yes um so i don't yeah i don't see how it, i don't see how it's how it's going to happen i'm very pessimistic about everything and then as i look back particularly now that i'm i'm working on this very big say big, big book hopefully not too big but uh, in terms of its sweep it's going to cover two and a half thousand years of history and i i just sort of look and i think well you know there are periods where one group of people has ruled this this territory or or another but i don't think i don't see a um two sovereign groups of people sharing it you know it's it's different to say you know the, the ottomans were there and some people point to the ottomans as a golden era and it's certainly true that it was you know things were more peaceful most of the time at that point but it, you know the ottomans were in charge from um you know distant constantinople at that yeah they weren't it wasn't two people both trying to you know to 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 rule that part of the world uh so i think yeah it's uh there's 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 not going to be a, a peaceful solution any anytime soon that 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 reconciles the coexistence of, of both these groups of people well on that sobering but i think very accurate note um james thank you so much for talking to me and this sort of epic uh, description of the history of israel and palestine thank you for having me arthur Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you found it interesting or useful, please share it or even give us a good review. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. I hope to have James Barr back again soon to talk in greater detail about the more recent period in the Israel-Palestine conflict. But that's all for now from this two-part special. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the music is by Matty Benbrook. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.